If you have a Bible with you this morning, you want to open it up to Hebrews chapter 5, stepping back into that text. We've been in Hebrews for about 11 weeks now. It's our 12th week, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time. One of the most common questions I have asked of me on a weekly or, um, yeah, usually pretty a weekly basis is, why do you teach the way that you do? And they don't mean it in a negative way. Uh, it's, it's generally a question about stylistic difference because it's, it's not something uh, people encounter very often. Expository teaching um, was the benchmark of the United States up until about the 1980s. With the arrival of the megachurch um, in, in the nation in the 1980s, I'm, I'm not saying this is a negative thing, um, came a need to modify teaching styles. <clears throat> and so churches across the country began adapting to large group environments where people were coming in who didn't have a good grasp on the Word of God. And so they began what was known as topical teaching. And topical teaching would typically be a, a series where an individual would choose a topic and begin speaking on it and allow God's Word to kind of undergird it or support it. And it, they would choose sections out of the Bible to support the topic. Expository teaching was kind of the benchmark in the United States until about the 1980s in which an individual goes to God's Word and God's Word speaks to the issue at hand. And so we do expository teaching here simply because I personally have the conviction that God's Word is alive and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword and His Holy Spirit really understands us even better than we understand ourselves. So when we allow His Word to be opened up in an expository way in teaching word by word, verse by verse, He helps us to see things we wouldn't see on our own. So part of the the shift in the culture came as a result of culture not really knowing their Bible very well. That's part of where we're going to this morning in the understanding of Hebrews chapter 5 in what this writer has to say to us. Before I can get there, though, I want to do a little recap of one verse of where we left off at two weeks ago. But before I can get there, I want to pray with you. So would you join me in prayer, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, we come before you recognizing that you are the author of all truth, and what you have to say is a paramount for us to listen to and to hear you. So we ask right now that you would clear out any cobwebs that are in our mind, and that you would help us to be fully present, and that you would speak to us. And I know that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can speak to each person individually right where they're at at this moment. Help us, Father, to have ears to listen to you, to have eyes to see. We would ask that you would be our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's look at verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 5. Just allow your eyes to drift up there for just a moment before we go to verse 10. It says this, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The reason I wanted to go back to that is because a lot of people struggle over the thought that Jesus was made perfect, therefore he must have been imperfect. Jesus was never imperfect. That's not what's being stated here. The phrase doesn't suggest he had something to improve in his life. The phrase actually means to be made complete. In other words, he completed his qualifications as high priest. He came, offered himself as the perfect sacrifice, 
presented himself before the Father, and the Father said, the, the debt has been paid. So therefore, he became the source of eternal salvation. So it, it, it would say, he was made complete, or you can use the word perfect there. So that's where we leave off at in verse 9. Until this point, the author who's writing to these Hebrews has not really told them why he's writing to them. We've been in this thing 11 weeks now, and he's kind of skirting around the edges, not necessarily beating the bush. He's brought out some very significant points, but he's never really said what the real problem is and why he's approaching them until we get to chapter 5 and in verse 11, and he drops the hammer. And where we're at today is kind of the midpoint in the study of Hebrews. So it doesn't take a lot of math to figure out if we're halfway through it. we probably got another 11 weeks in this. But it's taken him this long to help them understand why he's writing to them because he had to lay a case. Well, in order for me to present a case for you this morning, I'm going to use a 2014 scenario. So I'm just going to ask you mentally to step with me into a, a setting. Let's step into a coffee shop. You choose the place, Panera's, Traverse Pie Company, Starbucks, it doesn't really matter. But just envision yourself sitting down at a table. You're by yourself. You have your piece of pie in front of you and your coffee. And another person sits in the booth across from you. You don't know them. And this is a person who wants to engage in conversation. So across the aisle, you just begin talking about some basic things. Very pleasant conversation. It's easy to engage with him. You notice in the midst of the conversation that his, his dialect is kind of broken English. And so therefore you assume that maybe he's an immigrant to this country. As the conversation unrolls, he begins asking questions about Christianity. Real basic things that you feel very comfortable with. Like, can you tell me about Jesus and where he was born? and Who were his parents? He's obviously interested in the background. Before long, he begins asking questions that are of a deeper nature, and you don't have answers for it. You find your heart rate quickening, and you find little pricklies on your skin, and your breath is moving a little faster than you would like it to. Pretty soon, it's hard to swallow, and you'd like to be speaking more eloquently than you are, and you find yourself tripping over words. And before you know it, almost imperceptibly, the individual drills down and starts asking really hard questions and then turns on a dime the conversation to begin talking about Allah and Muhammad and the Quran. And it's obvious he was raised in Islam. This individual pushes and pushes and pushes to the degree where you want to run and, and leave the environment that you find yourself in. Let's put a face to this individual. Let's put an image on the screen. You have just encountered Nabil Qureshi. Nabil, the son of Pakistani immigrants to the United States, first generation here, speaks a little bit of a broken dialect, very much enjoys going into coffee shops and finding soft targets, American Christians. Because he was raised as the son of Pakistani immigrants, he was raised in Islam, attended the mosque on a regular basis, he knows the Quran inside and out to the degree that he can cite words that you've never heard before, phrases that have never been part of your dialect, and you don't know what to do with it. For Nabil, this is entertainment. 
Nabil loves to go into coffee shops and hunt down soft target Christians because he knows that they're inexperienced in the Word of God and that they don't have an ability to push back. And every time he has these conversations, he feels emboldened in his conversations to the degree that he can push back even harder the next time. What would you do? What would you do if you found yourself in that conversation? Let's take Nabil and and put this situation on the shelf for a minute, and we'll come back to it in a few moments towards the end. We'll we'll talk about Nabil in a few more moments. I want to bring up for you an anchor verse this morning. It comes from Hebrews chapter 6, and it's an anchor to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 6.12. So allow your eyes to drift to that for just a moment. It says this, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This verse summarizes the key issues going on in where we're going this morning. It's safe to say this author is troubled by the immaturity of the church. He's writing to these Hebrews because he has no doubts in his mind. There's a serious potential of them falling away because of their immaturity. They're tempted to leave what they know to be true about Jesus and run back to the safety net of Judaism because Rome sanctions Judaism. It doesn't sanction Christianity. And they're tempted to leave what they've been hearing because they're immature in the Word of God. So he writes to them point blank, and it starts in verse 10. Let me me take you there. Hebrews 5.10, he's speaking of Jesus. Jesus being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And there it is. He just plays it right out there. I want to explain Melchizedek to you. I want to explain the deeper things, that he was both a priest and king, and that Jesus is that kind of a priest. But it's hard to explain because you become dull of hearing. The translation for dull in this language is slothful. Matter of fact, the word is nothros. It's in your notes this morning. And if you look at it, it's on the back side of your notes. It literally has this connotation of laziness to it. Figuratively, it means stupid. And don't misunderstand that. It's not talking about someone with a weak intellect. It's talking about someone who's allowed themselves to drift to a place where they become slothful. Lori and I have out at our house um, a four-wheeler. It, it's actually kind of a modified golf cart. And a friend tuned it up for us last fall so that it would run better. However, um, it sat through the winter, and it, it's got some, I think, polluted gas in it. It, it, it won't run well. It, it has no oomph to it, no capacity. This word, nothros, was put together of a compound word, two words. The first word meaning no, and the second word meaning push, no push, no oomph, no, no capacity. Well, when it's used of a person, of a human, this word actually is talking about somebody who's become intellectually numb. We're talking about somebody who's apathetic spiritually. And and it leads to the preventing of any spiritual development in their life whatsoever. So here's a key question for you this morning. You're sitting here and listening to the Word of God. You have to ask yourself this question. Do I have the same problem? Is this true of me? Have I become slothful towards the things of God and towards His Word? And and if you land on the position that perhaps you are, know that you're in good company. Many people find themselves 
in this position. And, and if you do find yourself in that place, you need to pray. And I, I literally mean right now, just a whisper prayer, a sentence to God. God, help me not to treat your word with apathy, not to be slothful towards this. This is kind of a follow-up to a question I had last week after, uh, you know, Easter weekend, lots of people here, 915 service, a guy came up to me first time at New Hope Church, he's 30 years old, and he said to me, you know, you've been talking to us about the unwilling witness and the silent witness and the willing witness. He said, I identify myself as a willing witness, I'm a follower of Christ, but what does that look like? How do I put that out there so that I'm like a mature follower of Christ? It was a legitimate question. Saying, what does that look like for me to be that way? What are the spiritual trademarks of maturity? What you're going to see this morning is the converse to this, the trademarks of immaturity. It's the 180 degree view because he says in verse 11, you have become dull and slothful. Focus on the word become. How does this happen? He's saying, you weren't always there. You've become this way. The implication is, at one time, they've been alert. At one time, they were very interested in the things of God and in God's Word. Well, I know this to be true. Dullness is gradual. And it sneaks in over a long period of time. It's very, very sneaky. And it's an acquired state. These are not naturally slow people. They're not stupid. They're not naturally slow learners, but they've allowed themselves to become lazy. This word lazy is used one other place in Hebrews 6. And we just looked at it in our anchor verse. Look with me again. Hebrews 6.12 We do not want you to become nothros, lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. How does this happen? Let's go back to that again. You might remember if you were here when we started Hebrews in chapter 2, the writer began identifying trademarks of what was going on in their life. In chapter 2, he said, there's a danger that you're drifting away. You're moving right on past the harbor. L- look with me on the screen. Hebrews 2.1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Remember, I gave you the imagery of a ship that had totally missed the port that it was going towards. It, it didn't measure the winds right and it just drifted right on past. Well, it started with the drifting, and then it surfaced in the doubting. Look at this one, Hebrews 3. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from God. See, as a result of the drifting and the doubting, they become dull of hearing. They're, they're nothros, and they're unable to retain the Word, and to act on the Word, and to receive it. Let's contrast this, because it always helps to have a 180-degree view the opposite direction. What does a mature church look like? What does a mature believer look like? Well, Paul talks about the church at Thessalonica. These people were on fire. They were on fire for God's Word. Let me show you this. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 We constantly thank God that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. It has its roots. This problem has its roots in unbelief. That's what he's been using the contrast of Old Testament Israel. They got released from Egypt. They were shown the promised land. They went all the way to the threshold of the promised land. And then they didn't believe that God was really on their side, that God really wanted the best for them. 
So they looked at the giants in the land and decided, we can't believe God for that. We're going to go back to where it's safe. That's the same problem with these recipients of the letter of Hebrews. Some of you know that Lori and I lived in Arizona for a couple years when we first got married um, in the the 80s. And where I was at was um, between Phoenix and Tucson. North of Tucson, about 40 minutes or so, um, uh, a parachurch organization that we had come on staff with called Youth Haven Ranch. And Youth Haven Ranch is located in, in Picacho, Arizona, literally in the Sonora National Desert. Gorgeous area. Now, I loved being there in that location. And I was pretty excited when I first came on staff in that location because of the sounds of the desert. If you've been in the Sonora National Desert, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I became pretty irritated when I arrived and realized, man, the highway is only a mile away. And all I can hear are semi-trucks. And I hear the roar of these engines day and night. This is a busy corridor between Phoenix and Tucson. And day and night, day and night, day and night, I hear the tires humming up and down the highway. You know, eventually I became used to it. Eventually I just kind of tuned it out and it just became part of the environment. I couldn't hear the coyotes the way I wanted to. I couldn't hear the desert wrens pecking on the cactus the way I wanted to. I just accepted it until a friend would come and visit me who didn't live in the Sonora National Desert. And they would stand there and they'd be fascinated and excited like I was in the first weeks that I was there. And they, they would say, man, how irritating is that? That highway is right there just a mile away. All you hear are these stupid tires. And then I realized I'd become dull of hearing. I had totally accepted this into my life. And, and it just kind of caused everything else to become insignificant. One of the first signs of spiritual immaturity in your life is dullness towards the Bible. And this is what it sounds like. Man, the preaching is so dull. I think I just want to go play golf today. Uh, Can we not talk about spiritual things for once? I'm just so tired of having those conversations. It it creeps in like that. It surfaces in our life that way. I, I think this passage that we're looking at this morning is quite possibly the reason why we live in a society today that experiences the Church of the Month Club. Why people are constantly bouncing around week after week after week trying to find the most stimulating thing, the new place that's going to entertain them, to help them keep their ears alive. They want their ears tickled as opposed to the discipline of really diving deep into understanding what does God's Word have to say to me personally. And this issue of unbelief and doubting God has its fingers in one specific attribute, how we hear. Let me explain that for you. You might remember if you grew up in church that Jesus taught on what's called the parable of the soils or the parable of the seed. And when he was teaching about it, he said, when the Word of God goes out, sometimes it lands in really good soil and it takes root, goes down deep. Sometimes it goes out and it lands on hard ground and it just withers and it doesn't produce anything. And he said sometimes it goes out and and it lands on soil and then the weeds come up and they choke it out and they kill it. You, You remember that parable? The parable of the seeds and the sower? Okay. You know, at the very end of that illustration, Jesus' most important point was not talking about the seeds itself, but rather what I want you to see from Luke. What Luke listed in verse 8 or chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus said this, 
So take care how you listen. When the Word of God goes out and it lands in that soil, take care how you listen. The discipline of receiving what has been told to you. Here's the point that this author has been making to these Hebrews. There is so much to be learned about Melchizedek. And there's so much to be gained about who he was in contrast to Jesus. But it's the deep things. And I can't take you there. So he says it's hard to explain. Not because of the intrinsic difficulty of the subject, but because of the slothful attitude of the listeners. You're going to find when we get to chapter 7, the relationship between Melchizedek and Jesus is rich. It's going to give you a whole new view of who Jesus is for you and what He does for you. But this author is saying there's no use of going to these deeper things. Why? Because listening is of supreme importance. But unless they're willing to listen, they're going to become hard of hearing. How does that happen? Just through inattentiveness. Meaning that perhaps your attention is focused on reading other things. Listening to other things. Watching other things. Instead of spending time in the Word of God. And pretty soon a person finds himself slothful. So before they can understand the significance of Jesus' priesthood, they got to get beyond the immature understanding of God. Now, I'm going to say something really hard, and this may cause a thinning of the pews, and maybe we won't have to have a building program, but just hear me out on this. Sometimes the problem is with the pastor. In some church settings, the pastor is dull and is boring and hasn't done the work that he should do and doesn't properly exegete the Word of God. Because the Word of God is alive and it is active and it is sharp. God promised that. And that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes the pastor doesn't do his work. If you find that to be a case in which you're not connecting with me and my teaching style, go to a place where you're getting fed. I really do mean that. It's not about how many people can we add to this church and then prove to each other that we need to build a building. It's about your walk with Jesus Christ. It's about who you are before the eyes of the living God. And if you find yourself not being fed here, go to some place where they're teaching the Bible and you're being fed and you're really grasping it. But here's the converse of it. Sometimes, most times, when a person is spiritually dull, and they've become lethargic to the things of God, that person is really, really hard to teach. And they find themselves pulling out their cell phone and texting during a service, and they think maybe the pastor doesn't notice, and they begin telling jokes, and they're, 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 then they're passing notes back and forth to each other. I, believe me, I know some of you use your phone for your Bible. Don't, don't put that away, okay? I don't want you to think I'm calling you out. Somebody did that in the 915 service. His wife had left the service to go out and get a drink because she was coughing, and she was using her phone for an electronic study Bible. And when she came back in, I had just said that, and she didn't hear me say that, and she sat down next to her husband, and he elbowed her and said, put your phone away, put your phone away. <laughs> I'm not telling you to do that. You, if you've got your iPad with you or your phone and your Bible's on there, use that. But I want you to hear, the person who comes, who's spiritually dull, who's nothros, really, really hard to teach. Here's two counterparts to that today. An unbeliever who comes into the auditorium 
and has heard the things of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again, but never commits their life to Christ and His kingdom, that person can be nothros. They, they've heard it so much that they just kind of acquiesce to it, but they never really receive it and make it part of their life. And pretty soon they find themselves saying, I admire what Jesus did. I respect what Jesus did. But they neglect to act on the truth that they hear. That person can be one form of nothros. But I think I'm speaking primarily to believers this morning. I'm guessing most people in the auditorium and in the previous services are believers. Here's the two problems we face. When we do not act on God's truth, what we hear and what we know that He's expecting us to do, it's very possible that you'll become harder and harder and harder, and it's easier and easier and easier for you to resist the things of God. What you feel God calling you to do on a weekly basis, and therefore you never grow in your confidence because you begin getting a stony heart. That's one way. Here's another one. If you avoid diving into God's Word, to the degree that you can even insulate yourself from the Holy Spirit. What we know to be true is that this is God's Word. And He said it's alive and it's active. But how is it alive and active, church? It's alive and it's active through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that indwells you. The combination of God's Word and the Holy Spirit within you. If you're not spending time in God's Word, you can find yourself insulating yourself against the Holy Spirit. Paul was able to say near the end of his life, he didn't fail to teach the whole counsel of God, meaning he never skipped over the hard things. I hope that's always true of us here at New Hope, that we're always willing to go to the hard things. Let's go to verse 12. Verse, chapter 5 and verse 12 says this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. See, they ought to be teachers with this ability to instruct. Do you know that the ability to instruct other people is the hallmark of Christian maturity? And I'm not talking about public speaking. Christians who have progressed ought to be able to sit down in a coffee shop and engage someone in a basic conversation about who Jesus is not necessarily public speaking. Not all Christians have the gift of teaching. But all of us can talk about what we know from the Word. These people, they're not only unqualified to teach. He says, you've got to go back to kindergarten. He, he literally uses this word, socheia, in the Greek language. It literally means the ABCs. You need someone to teach you the basic oracles of God. He's saying the ABCs, the, the beginning things. What I wanted you to notice is that he defines milk as the basic oracles of the principles of God. What is that? I'm going to get into that in just a moment. But that means if we got milk, there must be meat being contrasted here. What is meat? That's the teaching about what Jesus is doing right now. See, their knowledge is minimal. And I want you to know that knowledge builds confidence, especially experiential knowledge. I'm 24 years old on staff with this parachurch organization, three months. And the founder of the organization comes to me on a Wednesday and says to me, Mark, I'm supposed to be speaking at a church tonight over on the east side of the state. Um, I want you to go do it for me. Now, you can't imagine my panic. I had no public speaking experience whatsoever, let alone the fact that the founder of the organization is this internationally known radio host, founder of... 
Youth Haven Ranch, co-founder of Family Life Radio, used to travel with Billy Graham. He's a highly respected individual. And this church is expecting him to show up. And he can't go, and he wants me to show up. You can't imagine my 24-year-old fear. Now, he says to me, Mark, you can do this. You're going to do a great job. Here's what I want you to do. Just take this movie projector in this film. It's kind of dating me, isn't it? Take, the, take this 16-millimeter projector in this film and, and take it to this meeting and just talk to these people about what you know. Talk to them about what we're doing with these children and who Jesus is in their life. Now, my wife goes with me. She's my big cheerleader. She's over on the sidewall. And she's saying, you're going to do a great job. I got all my little cheat notes. I'm telling you, it was the ugliest presentation that church had ever seen. But God used it. And those 20 or 30 people that were there on that Wednesday night, they were so encouraging. God used it. Why? Because he used it to grow me. Here I am all these years later looking back on that experience, and I know that those kind of uncomfortable experiences force us to grow. It's like a Nabil sitting down across the table from you in a coffee shop and not retreating and running the other way, but rather engaging So he says in verse 12 to these people, you need milk. Literally, you have become having need of milk in the Greek language, saying you've regressed. You've gone back to the place where you need milk. They've moved. The the truth is always, 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 always in your life with Christ. You're either moving forward or you're moving backward. There's no middle ground. There's no stagnation. It's impossible to stand still. These people have not advanced, so they've gone backwards. So he goes on to say in verse 13, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled. The milk of the Word, what is that? Here's what the milk of the Word is. What Jesus did when He was here on planet earth. In other words, the virgin birth. Being raised as a child, a young man. His miracles, His teachings. His life and death and resurrection. Those are the rudimentary things. That's the milk of the Word. That's where you began your walk in Jesus Christ. That's the finished work of Jesus Christ. That was your starting point. If that's the milk of the Word, what is the meat of the Word? Uh, Many people think it's these interesting little theological points that maybe I never knew before. Maybe it's, I'll finally understand when I get into the meat of the Word what predestination is. Or maybe... Maybe I'll learn whether or not Adam had a belly button. Think about that. Okay. That's not the meat of the word. Those are interesting. See, some of you never thought of that before, did you? (laughs) The meat of the word is not those interesting tidbits. Those are fascinating things. But the meat of the word is this. It refers to what's being done right now for you. What is Jesus doing in heaven for you right now. That's why he says, I want to tell you about Melchizedek. And I want to contrast him to who Jesus really is. This king, this prince, this priest. But I can't tell you about it. I can't take you to the deeper things because you're not ready for it. Or what are those things that Jesus does for us right now? His releasing of the power of the Holy Spirit into your life. He's granting you wisdom when you're lacking wisdom. That's why James wrote, if any of you lacks wisdom, come to your Father. He'll give it to you liberally. His intercession before the Father on our behalf. That's the meat of the Word that He wants to help them to understand. 
See, you're not fully equipped, even though maybe you thought that you were. Hebrews 13, 21 tells us this. This is part of what God wants to do for us. The God of peace, this was a blessing that this guy was praying over them. May He equip you in every good thing. See, you're not fully equipped. Jesus is releasing things to you. That's the meat of the Word building into your life. Now, I never, never, ever want to suggest that you're going to outgrow milk. We need to be told over and over and over again the old, old story. That's why Jesus gave us communion. That's why we have the baptisms in the church. It's to remind us of what was done for us. This visible imagery, we never are going to outgrow milk. Jesus gave us those examples, but we can't stop there. That would be regressing. And therefore, we would be called unskilled in the word of righteousness. That's why he says that in verse 13. See, a Christian who's occupied with only the elementary truths is still an infant. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language, it means without any experience. They never really tested it to see what they can do with the milk. Let's land this plane and go to verse 14 because he tells us there's a benefit. There's a benefit in being skilled in the work of God, in the Word of God. Verse 14 says this, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now the contrast here is from the simple things to the profound things. But the truth of it is the one who continues to feed only on God's most basic truths is going to fail to grow and they're going to lack spiritual discernment. Having raised four children, I understand that toddlers will put their fingers nearly any place, and they will put almost anything in their mouth. Well, if that's the imagery that he's using here when he's comparing children and telling them that they are children who need milk, the principle transfers over into the spiritual realm. Here's the contrast. A mature believer has discernment. Discernment about what is right and wrong, what is evil, and what is pure, what is true and what is false. A mature believer can listen to a podcast or read a book or watch someone on television teaching the Word of God and discern whether or not that person is teaching truth, whether or not what they're hearing and what is coming into them is consistent with God's Word. So if you hear a television evangelist say, God wants you to have a mansion and a Mercedes, you better go back to God's Word and check that. Say, is that true? Is that consistent with the Word of God? And not that there's anything wrong with a mansion or a Mercedes, but would Paul, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, would they agree with someone declaring that over your life? See, we have to use God's Word as the filter. It's the ultimate measuring rod to know, is that person being true to Scripture? And so he says in verse 14, it's a constant practice. See, this is real stuff. You've got to practice it all the time. Now, the New Testament makes substantial use of metaphors. And in this case, when he says constant practice, it's a metaphor. He's using the word gymnazo. We use it for the word gymnasium. It's the place where individuals in the first century went to physically exercise. Here's an interesting tidbit. When they worked out, they worked out naked. Can you imagine? That's why there was a male gym and a female gym. And I think you feel bad about your body when you go to the gym with clothes on. Can you imagine going naked? Now, if these individuals, they went to the gymnazo to work themselves out to physically train themselves. He's using that metaphor because he's clearly instructing us, mature believers, these consumers of solid food, if they constantly exercise themselves, 
they're developing spiritual perception, and the result is you got clear vision, clear visibility. You know God's Word. You understand, and you can distinguish good from evil. So here's the implication. You therefore wouldn't be in danger of not only doing the wrong things, but listening to the wrong things and letting those things into your life. But if you lack this perception, always going to be immature, always going to be lacking and leaning towards the really base things of life. So our spiritual core, the Holy Spirit within us, has spiritual feelers, the sensory perception. And that, that Holy Spirit presence in our life, putting out those feelers, increases in its capacity as we feed on the Word and as we apply it to our life. And it exercises those spiritual receptors. Paul wrote about it this way when he talked about physical exercise compared to spiritual exercise. 1 Timothy 4.7 Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This ability to discern good from evil is a crucial part of your maturity in Christ. So the next time you sit down in a coffee shop and a Nabil locates himself across the table from you, what Peter wrote of can be true of you. Let me remind you what Peter said. He was writing to people who were some struggling with this exact same situation. 1 Peter 3.14 Do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And don't ever throw that part out. That's part of speaking the truth in love. Gentleness and reverence respecting that individual. Here's the second part of Nabil Qureshi. Nabil took great pride and joy in taking on soft-target American Christians. And I told you it bolstered him in his belief about the Quran until he encountered a man by the name of David. David, who today is his friend, wasn't his friend at that time. And in talking with David very directly, he found that David was a person who modeled 1 Peter 3.14. Not that he took Nabil into the realm of predestination or to explain the things of Melchizedek or the deep things of God to him, but rather that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died, buried, and resurrected. The milk of the Word. He took him to the basic principles of the things that you know to be true. Now, Nabil had to do something with that. That's the first time anybody ever stood up to him. And he had to contrast what he knew about Islam to what he was hearing about this Jesus person whom he had always been told was only a prophet who never actually died on the cross. That caused him to do something remarkable. To get a copy of the Bible himself and begin actually reading it and matching it up against history. And David led Nabil to faith in Jesus Christ. How amazing that Nabil wrote a New York Times bestseller recently, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Hmm. He thought he was on the right path until he came up against someone who really understood God's Word. And I'm not talking about the really deep things, but the basic things. 
Old Testament Israel, when we began talking about Hebrews, we found had come right to the threshold of the promised land. And they believed that they couldn't trust God for the things that He wanted for them to have. And so they retreated. Why? They lacked discernment, church. They couldn't distinguish between good and evil. They didn't have the ability and they couldn't grasp it. And so they didn't trust God. The readers of this letter, the Hebrews who have received this, they're in the exact same situation. They're in danger of making the same mistake. Where does that come from? Negligence. Negligence to the Word of God. The truth is in America today, most people know more about their favorite sports team and the statistics of their favorite sports team than they do about the Word of God. And guys, don't feel like I'm picking on you. Many people spend way more time on Facebook and Pinterest than they should looking at that as opposed to things that would enrich their life. I understand from a note that Gary sent me this morning after he sat through the Saturday night service that somewhere around 78% of Americans believe that the United States of America is in moral freefall, decline. And those same 78% of Americans also believe that the answers to counteract that are found in the Word of God. But contrast that to the fact that only 24% of Americans spend any time on a weekly basis in their Bible at all. See, we know the solution, but the, the balance between the two, the gap, I mean, what's going on between the 24 and the 78%? Who's not believing what they know to be true? The reason for this negligence is because of all the distractions, and I want you to hear me. This is true in 2014, just like it was in the first century, just like it was in 1827. You know that I like to quote Charles Simeon. He had this church that he pastored over back in the early 1800s. He asked this question of his church regarding the Word of God. Do you make it the subject of your conversation with your families and of your personal meditation? Do you not, on the contrary, find that through the care and pleasure of this world, it is so choked that it never grows up to perfection? This is where I want to go in closing. How you use the milk of the Word and what you do with it greatly determines how ready you are to move into the deep things of God. What you know to be true about Jesus Christ and what He did here on earth is going to determine whether or not you're ready to take on issues of predestination and election and, and Melchizedek. See, if you stumble over the basic issues, like even God's attitude towards sin, Maybe you're watching too many steamy movies. If you're struggling over what God has to say about money, maybe your money is going in the wrong place. Maybe you haven't dealt with the basic issues first. See, this is not about your educational capacity or your background. It's really about surrendering all of who you are to the one and saying, I, I know where I started. I want to get back to that place again. I'm going to leave behind the former, and I'm going to strain ahead. I know highly educated people who stumble over the deep things of God. And I've known people over the course of my life with no more than an eighth grade degree. Never made it past the eighth grade, but can explain the greatness of our God. Why? Because they spent time in God's Word, and God's Spirit taught them. I want you to hear me. The remedy, and these are good things, 
The, the remedy is, is not a better software program for your computer on how to study the Bible. It's a good thing, but that's not the remedy. The remedy is not a better study Bible. I bet you've got a great Bible. The remedy is not a better app for your phone. The remedy is your heart and your prayer life, your attitude before your Father. And so it just really starts with you surrendering, saying, here I am. I want to get to that place, and I'm sincere about it. Now, in each of the services, I've, I've asked the same question, can I pray for you? And I want you to know that you're not among a group where you're the only individual who struggles with this. And Saturday night service, I asked this, and I stopped counting after 30 hands. The last service, same thing. I stopped counting after 30 hands. If you will bow your head with me right now, and if you want me to pray for you about this very issue, I'm just going to ask you to slide your hand up and let me know that you want me to pray for you about this very issue and that God has spoken to you this morning. Two, three, four, five, ten. Okay. 30, 40, 50, 60 hands. Let me pray for you. Father, I believe that you have spoken through your word this morning. Even to those who didn't want to raise their hand this morning because of shame. Some who felt like maybe they'd be identified by somebody they don't want to be identified by. God, I pray that you would come alongside that person and those who did boldly raise their hand who have been seen by you and have identified themselves as an individual who wants to be closer to you and to be able to speak boldly about you. So Father, I, I pray for the strength of the Holy Spirit to come upon these individuals and that you will, in your gentle, comforting way, come alongside us. Help us with this issue of discipline, Father. That we would dedicate time each day to finding ourselves in the study of your word. That we would be able to walk into a coffee shop and speak boldly about what we know to be true. That we know, that we know, that we know it. And Father, I pray for the courage of your people. Thank you for the time that has been spent here this morning. God, I ask that your blessing would rest heavily upon these individuals for having studied your word and the desire to apply it to their life. Speak to us throughout this week ahead of us, Father. Help us to represent you well in a hungry, hungry world. God, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. And all God's people said,